That Triathlon Show, episode 29. Hey, what's up, everybody? And welcome back to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. As always, I'm your host, Michael. And today's episode is the second in a three-part series on training zones. And in this second part, we're covering cycling training zones, how to use them to the best effect. So just for those of you who may have missed the first part of this series in episode 27, that was two episodes ago, we covered training zones for swimming. So I encourage you to go back and listen to that episode, because that's also where I briefly covered the purpose of training zones that is the same for all three disciplines of triathlon. Uh, just suffice it to say that training zones are super important for effective training. But yeah, if you haven't listened to episode 27, do go back and listen to that. And also, in episode 28, I got some incredible feedback for that episode with Brad Stolberg, author of Peak Performance. And we talked about just that peak performance and the science of success with Brad in episode 28. So uh, yeah, thank you so much for that feedback. And uh, just as you, I was blown away with uh, the knowledge that Brad has on the topic and how he managed to uh, to convey that information to us so yeah i was stoked to have brad on and happy that you enjoyed it as well for those of you who may have missed that episode do go back and listen to that as well we're going to dive into training zones for cycling now just a quick teaser i'm going to do another science update at the end of this episode and this one will be about which biomechanical parameters affect your running performance and running economy so stay tuned for that if you want to know what's important and what's not important in running biomechanics. All right, so a quick recap from episode 27 on training zones. The purpose of training zones is to train at the right intensity at the right time to make your training effective. So that when you're supposed to go easy, you don't go moderate. And when you're supposed to go hard, you don't go moderate. And I told you in episode 27 that those are the two most common mistakes that triathletes do. They go moderate when they're supposed to go easy and when they're supposed to go hard. So by having intensity zones and training according to them, you can avoid that. You obviously also need the right training prescription or training plan. But training zones make that so much easier. So And, and also, it's important to mention, especially now that we get into cycling, that uh, the exact right intensity can matter even to a few percentage points like, for example, 120% of your functional threshold power for a VO2 max workout is going to be more beneficial than a 130%. It's just a 7% difference between the two or percentage units, but, uh, but it's still a massive difference in that the physiological effects are not massive, but, but um, important enough that it matters So to go at the exact right intensity. All right, so that's the purpose of training zones, a quick recap on that. And as I said, go back to episode 27 to learn more about that. But uh, now let's move into the cycling specific stuff. So how do we actually measure intensity, which is what we want to do with training zones? We want to establish ways to determine and prescribe the right intensity. So how do we measure that on the bike? And the first and best way is with using power in watts. Because that is a direct measure of output. 
it's uh, what you actually produce to move your yourself and the bike forward and it's instantaneous when you have a power meter you immediately pretty much get the feedback to your bike computer or your multi-sport watch what power you are producing and how that is helping you move forward it doesn't lag like heart rate which we'll go into the downside of power there's one and that is that power meters can be quite expensive but actually there are coming out quite a few power meters on the market these days that aren't too expensive so i think you can get a a single leg power meter for something like 400 or at most 500 dollars these days so considering what you get it's not something that you have to get and especially if you're new to the sport just getting into the habit of training is much more important than getting all the gadgets and uh, i'm a big proponent of that i don't think that you need to get a power meter right away but when you get a bit further in this is one of the best things that you can that money can buy for you in triathlon the power meter all right so then we have heart rate which many of you are probably familiar with already and uh, heart rate is very valuable if you don't have a power meter but it does have several limitations so for example it lags so if you do an interval it usually takes a couple of minutes or three minutes or so until the heart rate starts to stabilize and if you've ever watched a functional threshold power heart rate curve you see that it may even increase throughout that 20 minute effort so it doesn't really stabilize at all if the intensity is high enough and that makes it obviously very difficult to prescribe any heart rate at which you should train because you don't know what shall output that will eventually end up in stabilizing that heart rate at that correct level is so because your intervals are going to be shorter than than what is enough for that heart rate to stabilize uh, i hope that is clear so uh, bas- basically what i mean is that your heart rate if you do three minute intervals then you stop your hard effort after three minutes but if you would have continued that heart rate would have kept climbing and climbing and finally stabilized at a level that was x beats per minute but you didn't get to see that because uh, the heart rate, heart rate lags so much but with power you would immediately see what your output was how much power you're pushing in those three minute intervals and it would be steady it would be stable and constant throughout those repetitions which is the output you produced and that is why power is more accurate and better than heart rate also there are some other external factors that affect heart rate as i talked about a bit in episode 27 like uh, caffeine hydration weather temperature recovery status etc so uh, and in certain type of workouts as i alluded to like very high intensity workouts with short intervals like vo2 max workouts it is practically impossible to train with heart rate i couldn't do a a vo2 max session with heart rate definitely not i would never do that the third alternative which i would use in that case would be rpe rate of perceived exertion and that is in my opinion better than heart rate you just i tend to use like to use a 10 point scale so where one is like super 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 easy i will actually link to a pdf document that i have on the rpe scale in the show notes for this episode on that show.com that you can download and that has like cues that you can so you can know what your exact rate per exceed exertional uh, level is so for example for a level of uh, seven it's something like i think i can can maintain this effort for 15 more minutes i don't remember this uh, off the top of my head but uh, 
but that's along the lines of what those internal queues are. So you can you can actually measure RPE pretty accurately using those kinds of of scales. All right. So when we start to determine your zones, we base those on your power at lactate threshold, which is pretty much equivalent to your anaerobic threshold, depending on what terminology you use. And it depends on basically the testing methods that are used to determine that threshold. But for most of us, actually, we determine that threshold using a field test and not a laboratory test. So we call it functional threshold. And uh, then your power at functional threshold is your FTP or your functional threshold power. And that is uh, the most important physiological determinant of endurance cycling performance, most likely since it integrates VO2 max and the percentage of VO2 max that can be sustained for a given duration and even cycling efficiency. And uh, that, by the way, was uh, taken from an article written by Andy Kagan, who is a PhD and who has determined these zones that I will explain for you in a couple of minutes. So I'll link to that article. It's uh, on Training Peaks in the show notes as well. What I was meaning to say was that determining an appropriate number of zones uh, can be a bit difficult and it's even somewhat arbitrary because it's not as if uh, you do you work just one single energy system or physiological system and then you suddenly as soon as you cross a certain limit of power or heart rate or whatever you are completely different systems but it's a, a continuum of systems that you work they're integrated and, and overlapping so Andy Kagan, as I mentioned, has developed the cycling power zones that are most commonly used today. And I will also describe the heart rate zones that go with these zones. So don't tune out if you don't train with power meter. And also, there will be a lot of numbers in this show. So you can go to thattriathlonshow.com after the show and get the show notes that will have these tables and numbers for you. So as I said, when developing these zones, uh, Andy Kagan, he basically compromise between more zones and which would have more accuracy in uh, what systems were used but also adding more complexity so uh, in his final system he uses six different training zones and uh, these we will cover in just a couple of minutes but first let's talk about how you determine your functional threshold power which is what all of those zones are based on so all of those training zones are based on your on percentage points of your functional threshold power like 90% of ftp or 80% of ftp and the same goes for heart rate if you train by heart rate you have a lactate threshold or functional threshold heart rate and your zones will be based on percentages of that functional threshold heart rate all right so uh, as I said, you determine your FTP by doing a field test. And uh, a protocol that I like to use for this, there are a few different ones. And for example, I know that uh, the protocol that, uh, that Andy Kagan uses has a five-minute clearance effort in the warm-up that is uh, harder than FTP. So it is uh, an anaerobic effort that is supposed to empty your anaerobic system of energy so that you just use aerobic energy in your actual 20-minute test, which is the main test that will determine your FTP. But uh, I think that it has some merits, but uh, I think as, as long as you're consistent with what you do and you do your protocol the same way uh, each time you do the test, then, then it doesn't really matter the exact warm-up that you do. But basically, this is how I set up the protocol for myself and for my athletes. 
sometimes I use, uh, if I do during the winter season, I use the trainer road, a 20 minute FTP test. So I'll link to that as well, or the trainer road. So you can check that out. So that is a software for indoor cycling training. All right. So the warm up would be 10 minutes easy. Then it would be three, uh, reps of, uh, or three sets of one minute hard, one minute easy. So that is six minutes total, three times two minutes. Then it would be five minutes easy. Five minutes hard, and this is all based on effort, not on a particular, but I don't necessarily go above FTP. It would be below FTP probably. And then five minutes easy again. And then the FTP test starts. And that is a 20 minute all out effort. So you go as fast as you can for 20 minutes. It's important to not go out too hard. It's easy to do, but make sure that you pace yourself correctly, but also that you make sure that you have given it your 100% at the end of that 20 minutes. So you save that 20 minutes uh, as, a, as a separate lap on your watch. That's the easiest way to do it. And uh, after that, you cool down, of course, after that test, uh, 10, 20 minutes, easy spin. And uh, some stretching is good. And then basically you can determine your lactate threshold heart rate and uh, FTP, your lactate threshold or, or functional threshold power, by uh, by multiplying your average heart rate and your average power for that 20-minute segment by... 95%. So you multiply it by 0.95. And that the, uh, the idea here is that uh, your functional threshold power is the power that you could sustain in a race situation for one hour. But that's very difficult to do in a field test on your own. So you use a 20 minute test instead, which is much easier, less mentally draining. Although it is mentally draining. There's no denying that. But then you subtract 5% from that result from your power. And that will basically be a proxy for your one hour power or your FTP. So for example, if you averaged 250 watts for the 20 minute segment and your heart rate was 170 beats per minute, then you multiply both of those by 0.95 and you would get an FTP of 238 watts. So 12 watts less than your average and uh, a functional threshold heart rate of 162. So eight beats per minute less than your average heart rate. So what are the zones that we get from that? We will continue to use that example and I will have some numbers for you here just to keep moving along and, and get, get an example. So let's say, actually, no, let's not do that. I have my training peaks open for an athlete of mine that recently did an FTP test and uh, he got an FTP of 247. I don't remember off the top of my head what that, um, I think it was 261 was the, the 20 minute average power. So that means an FTP of 247. And, uh, so then we determine the zones based on percentages of that 247 watts. All right. So, uh, and I haven't uh, written down in my notes what his, um, functional threshold heart rate was, but it was probably something like, uh, I don't even want to guess, but I will have uh, examples of the heart rate for the different zones so you can follow along anyway. Okay, so zone one, this is where we get into the actual zones that you determine. And and this is separate from the swimming episode because that's where we just prescribed paces and not necessarily even used zones. We used paces, but uh, now we use zones. So, okay, zone one is active recovery. It's less than 55% of your FTP or 68% of your functional threshold heart rate. And that heart rate is one point where me and uh, Andy Coggan differ a bit in how we determine it. For zones one and two, I actually prescribe those percentages as a bit higher than, than Coggan does. 
He has 68% as the upper limit of zone 1. I have 75% because I find that athletes can never, ever, ever hit that 68%, even though they're going really, really slow, like way below 55% in terms of power. So, so I increased that a little bit. And it's still very much, I've tested these myself, and it's still very much active recovery when you hit those heart rates. So I use, but, but I'm not sure if, I'm not saying I'm right and, and Kagan is wrong, but this is just something that I use and it makes it more, I think it makes it a bit more practical for the athletes at least, even though it's not necessarily right. Uh, all right. So yeah, in terms of power, less than 55% of FTP and heart rate. 68% in Kagan zones and 75% in Ericsson zones. Those are my zones. So that means for this athlete that has an FTP of 247, uh, he wouldn't go less than 138 watts and less than 116 beats per minute. And those uh, active recovery rides are your cooldowns, rests between uh, intervals, early parts of warm-ups, and also some active recovery rides. But th- that's active recovery rides is something that people that are training more high volume do and uh, triathletes that train let's say eight hours or less per week generally don't do those rides because it, they're not beneficial enough because you would do if you do easy riding it would be zone two instead so zone two is aerobic riding or endurance and that is uh, below 75 percent of your ftp or 83 percent of your functional threshold heart rate in Kagan zones and 85 percent in ericsson zones. so they're getting pretty close there for this athlete with an FTP of 247, that means staying between 138 watts and 187 watts in terms of power, and staying between 116 BPMs and 142 BPMs in terms of heart rate. And these zone two is for long, steady workouts. They don't even need to be long, but just your basic bread and butter aerobic workouts where you don't go hard, you get your volume in. And that's something that not all triathletes actually need to do. But but if you, it depends on your program, it may be right for you, it may not. Most at least do have some long rides. So your long ride will generally have a large part of it that may also have a large part in zone free, which is more moderate or tempo. So let's get into that. Zone free, tempo, it's kind of around your aerobic threshold. So it's uh, way below your anaerobic threshold or your FTP still, but your aerobic threshold is where you still start to be a bit labored. In running terms, your aerobic threshold would be maybe around your marathon pace so yeah that that gives you an idea it's it's easy when you do it but but when you need to do it for three hours then then it gets more difficult or two or even two hours actually that three hours is definitely an exaggeration in terms of biking at least so because these are 76 to 90 percent of ftp and uh in kagan zones and actually i will also talk to you about alternative zones here from trainer road because they use 76 to 84 percent and then they have a separate zone which is the sweet spot which is basically high zone free in trainer road that kagan doesn't have and i really like that trainer road approach because the sweet spot training zone is a zone where you can really get a lot of benefits it's high zone free you can actually work on improving your ftp while still staying below ftp so that would be in trainer road terminology between 85 to 95 percent of your ftp and that is a zone again that kagan doesn't have it's uh falls in between his zone three and zones four but in terms of heart rate zone three is uh 94 percent of your lactic or functional threshold heart rate or below so again talking about this athlete with an ftp of 247 watts uh, up to or between 187 and 224 watts would be 
this zone free in Kagan terminology and between 142 and 161 beats per minute. So when do you do zone free workouts? Well, these are your longer tempo intervals. Like let's say you do three by 12 minutes or three by 15 minutes or even four by 15 minutes when you, and you can do even more of them. It depends on where you are in zone free. If it's low zone free, mid or high. It can be long segments in your long rides. I've been doing like an hour and a half segments in long rides. They have been low zone free and not high zone free because I couldn't maintain high zone free. But still, you can ride in low zone free for a fair amount of time. And it's starting to push you a bit when you do that for a long time. Free workouts, if you have, for example, those, let's say, three by 15 minute intervals, then you would have relatively short rest intervals. It might be five minute rest intervals. So you do a lot of work with pretty a pretty small amount of rest. And zone free is a lot of race-specific workouts, especially if you're racing uh, half-distance triathlon or full-distance triathlon or even Olympic-distance triathlon for a lot of athletes will be zone free intensity. And again, uh, just to reiterate, Trainer Road has that high zone free, low zone four sweet spot range, which is 85 to 95% of your FTP. And I will have all of these numbers in the show notes so you can go and check them out. All right, moving on to zone four, which is threshold. And Kagan defines that as 91 to 105% of FTP. And Trainer Road, again, it would be 96 to 105%. So they both end at 105% of FTP. And the heart rate would be 95 to 105% of like of functional threshold heart rate. I generally end that uh, heart rate range at 102% because when you get beyond that, I have seen that usually in terms of power, you get into, into zone five because it's uh, very difficult to do long enough zone four work that you get into that beyond 102% heart rate just through zone four work alone. So the athlete with an FTP of 247 would have zone four range between, let me see here, I lost my notes. Yeah, between 4 and 261. So it's fairly big in terms of Kagan power because he, again, goes from 91% and not 95%. But that FTP is around... When you do zone 4, it's usually going to be between... At least I pretty much always, when it's zone 4 work, it's between that 95 and 105% of FTP, so like Trainer Road does. So it's going to be pretty close to your FTP or or above it a bit. So that would be for this athlete, for example, uh, something like 240 to 260 watts when his FTP is 247. So the kind of workouts that you would do in zone four are threshold intervals. These can be something like six, eight, 10 minute intervals. For some very high-end athletes, it might be 15-minute intervals. But these are very hard work. It does work incredibly well to increase your FTP. The rest intervals are still relatively short. You can do, for example, let's say four times eight minutes with four-minute rest intervals. That would be a very good zone four workout. And also something that I like to do are over-unders or crisscross. There are a few different ways to do them. One is to do like just within zone four so you would do like go go just a bit above and a bit below your ftp and uh and crisscross for maybe a minute that that you go above you at 105 percent ftp and then two minutes at 95 percent, and then you repeat it a couple of times and then you rest at a lower intensity and then you do it all again for a couple of times or a few times Another thing that you can do is to do a continuous zone 3 to zone 4 workout or the other way around so that you go at your FTP for, let's say, 5 minutes and then 5 minutes at high zone 3 and then again go back to 
five minutes at your FTP and back to high zone free. So your high zone free will be your recovery intervals. And then you can get in a 25, 30, 35, even 40 minute workout that is uh, very intense and, and very long duration. So that, that's incredibly effective as well. So zone five, then moving on is VO2 max or maximum aerobic capacity. That will be 105 to 120% of your FTP or beyond 106% of your functional threshold heart rate. Usually, the VO2 max work is going to be beneficial when you get to 115% to 120% of FTP. 110% is not going to do you as much good as 115 or 120%. So this is where exact prescriptions is getting very important. These kinds of workouts are familiar for most, I think. They are short intervals of very high intensity. A bread and butter one would be six uh, times three minutes at VO2 max, followed by three minutes recovery. So rest intervals are similar to interval length generally. And uh, so these are pretty pretty straightforward. It's a pretty straightforward zone, but a very good zone, very beneficial. And uh, I encourage you to go back and listen to episode 20, I believe it was, where it's about master's athletes, but it's also a lot about VO2 max because that's very important for master's athletes. And I talk a bit more about VO2 max and how beneficial that can be for athletes of all abilities in that episode. So go back and listen to that. So again, for this athlete that has an FTP of 247 watts, his 120% of that would be 298 watts. So that's where he would do his VO2 max work if it's 120% of FTP. So finally, zone six is basically max efforts. It's uh, anaerobic capacity. Kogan even has, uh, sorry, he has seven zones. The seventh is neuromuscular power, which goes beyond that. But for triathletes, I mean, you're not going to, it's not going to, you've were endurance athletes. So this is more for like track cyclists that those two are going to be, that you need to be specific enough to make a difference between those two. So essentially, uh, what I would say is just call those two zone six together. And, and that will be when you do something like, 30 second all out reps followed by five minute recoveries or something like that and repeat that for a few times so really going all out those are going to be your zone six workouts so just a quick um breakup of how zone training on the bike fits into the big picture of training so let's start with zone three because that's race specific training again as i said for the lead up to half distance or full distance racing and also olympic distance races for actually for most triathletes so that is what you use zone free for generally. But other than that, race-specific training, I don't particularly like to use zone free too much unless it's very high zone free sweet spot work. I like to do that, but not too much vague zone free work, which is uh, not specifically enough within that ninety to ninety-five percent, or at least eighty-five to ninety-five percent of FTP, because it's uh, it's an easy enough intensity that the benefits are not going to be big enough. But you're go- still going to, it's still going to take its toll and maybe impact on other work. So unless it's a sweet spot workout, which we know are very beneficial, then I don't bother with zone free outside of the race specific lead up. But in the build up, you need to do race specific training. Uh, so zone free is something that is going to be very prominent there. So your volume, most of your volume will obviously be accumulated in your endurance zone or aerobic zone, which is zone two. But for triathletes, age group triathletes especially, it's not all necessary to accumulate that much volume, to be honest. So it, this may not pertain to you. But if you are a triathlete to do a lot of volume, if you train for for full distance uh, triathlons or even half distance or are and are very ambitious and do a lot of of uh, 
a volume or if you need to work on your cycling specifically and are in a, in a cycling specific period then you may accumulate volume and that will be accumulated in zone two it's your all day long long slow distance zone but most of your quality workouts outside of that build up to races is going to be in zone four or zone five so they're going to be around threshold or vo2 max so that is basically and yeah, as I said, sweet spot in zone three is also going to be among those quality workouts. High zone three, very high zone three. And in Kagen zones, low zone four. So let's put a few examples out there. If you cycle for two days per week, a general, very general prescription would be a zone two long ride or maybe a shorter zone three long ride. Let's say 90 minutes with 60 to 75 minutes at zone three. That would be one workout. And the other would be a zone four or zone five quality work- workout. Simple. On three days per week, you would do, again, a zone two long ride or a slightly shorter, but with more zone three intensity long ride. And then a zone four or zone five quality workout. And then you would do either zone two, an endurance ride, or if you have a heavy week in terms of running and swimming, a recovery ride. Or if you have a lighter week in terms of running and swimming, and it's not a specific recovery week, then you could add a second quality workout, which may be a sweet spot workout. And on four days per week, you would do, again, that zone two long ride. It would probably remain a long ride, not a shortish long ride, but actually a long ride. It may still have zone three in it, but it would remain long. You would do that zone four or zone five quality workout again. And also probably a sweet spot workout and then an active recovery or aerobic endurance shorter workout. And those active recovery and endurance workouts may be as short as 30 to 45 minutes, maybe the active recovery is 30 and the endurance is 45 or one hour. And that uh, those quality workouts would be one hour to one hour, 15 minutes. You don't need to do longer than that. So, okay, that's uh, wrapping it up for these zones. Just to repeat these zones quickly or what we covered, your zones are based on percentages of of your functional threshold power or heart rate if you're using heart rate. You can find your functional threshold by doing a 20-minute field test. Go all out and take 95% of your heart rate or power, average heart rate or power for that test, and that will be your functional threshold. Your zones are percentages of that power, FTP or FTHR, and I will have them in the show notes on that show.com. But the zones are zone 1, active recovery, zone 2, aerobic endurance, zone 3, tempo, and uh, zone three, high zone three to low zone four would be a special zone called sweet spot. Then we would have threshold in zone four, and uh, then VO2 max in zone five. And then finally, zone six would be max efforts or anaerobic capacity and neuromuscular power. All right, so I hope that you found this useful. Uh, be sure to subscribe to the show so you don't miss the next and final part in the series, which will be zones for running. And if you have any questions about this, because I know it's uh, a bit maybe difficult to follow along on an audio medium with these uh, all these numbers and stuff. So do send me your questions. I will answer you directly in the email as well as on the podcast in case other people have the same questions. All right. I said at the front of the episode that I would have a science update. And this study that I found was a British study where they put 97 runners with uh, a variety of ability levels, 10k PBs ranging from sub 30 minutes to just below one hour. And they put them through a series of treadmill tests and they used uh, motion capture uh, 3D camera analysis and analyzed 24 different uh, biomechanical variables and uh, 
And then they compared those uh, results. They used those, captured those uh, biomechanical patterns at different uh, paces. And, uh, and then they compared those with running economy and also PBs for that specific running season. So, and uh, tried to investigate how different biomechanical variables affect running economy and uh, running performance in terms of personal best. So the first takeaway is that there was a large variability in most biomechanical parameters, which uh, you can draw the conclusion from that, that there's probably not one single right way to run, which we already knew, but it's important to reiterate that. But um, they also found some interesting things and that actually as many as 19 of 24 biomechanical variables were in some way statistically significantly correlated with running economy. And 11 of the 24 variables were correlated with seasonal best, uh, so performance, running performance. But uh, let's cut it down to the most important ones because they they tried to investigate also which ones had the most impact and were the most relevant of those variables using different uh, statistical and data analysis uh, tools or uh, methods. And the variables that stood out for running economy were vertical oscillation, so how much you bounce up and down. And it's better to have less vertical oscillation, so move forward more. And the second variable was how bent your knee is when your foot hits the ground. And it's better to hit the ground with a more bent knee rather than a more straight knee. And the final variable was braking, uh, which uh, was measured by, by looking at the motion of your pelvis and how it decelerated as you hit the ground. And obviously less slowdown as you hit the ground is better. And so these variables accounted for most of the differences in running economy. And most of that actually came from vertical oscillation. So the takeaway here is to try to reduce vertical oscillation a bit. So for performance, the variables that stood out were braking, just as above, and then the angle of the shin when your foot hits the ground. So in this case, it's uh, better to hit it closer to vertical. Uh, in the case of the knee above, it was uh, a more bent knee. But uh, there's a difference between these angles that they measured. And then the third one was duty factor. So basically how quick your ground contact time was in relation to your stride rate. So, so you should have a quick ground contact time in relation to your, to how quick your stride is. And then finally the forward lean of your tri trunk. And it was actually better to have a more upright trunk in this case. So in this, in this case, there wasn't any single variable that was as important as uh, vertical oscillation in terms of running economy. But for running performance, these four variables explained 30% of, of individual variation in race times. And the two biggest were the shin angle when your foot hits the ground and the braking as measured by deceleration of the pelvis. So some important things or uh, interesting things are the factors that didn't show up as significant for performance or economy. And that is what part of your foot hits the ground first. So hopefully we can finally bust that myth that you should run on your toes or something like that, because that's uh, simply not the case. This is not the only study that has come to that conclusion. And uh, what your cadence is didn't matter either in this case. So uh, that's interesting. Although it has to be said that the speeds they measured this at were they didn't go to very high speeds. So if they would have gone to higher speeds, I think that probably cadence may have been a factor. That's just my guess. I have no idea. But uh, 
or I do have an idea or a guess, but uh, but I don't know about this. But I think that that's something that should be taken into consideration. But at these moderate and slower paces, so cadence didn't matter. All right, so I hope that you enjoyed this episode. Once again, we're coming to the end of it. Remember to go to thattriathlonshow.com to get the show notes. They will be up shortly. And uh, I will have all the links measured here, the Andy Coggan article, all the tables with uh, training zones, percentages of FTP, the test protocol, that PDF download with uh, rate of perceived exertion and internal cues. Everything that I mentioned in this episode will be there. So make sure that you go there and subscribe. Thank you, as always, for listening. I appreciate you, and uh, as always, this podcast is nothing without you, the listener. Keep training smart, and keep loving triathlon.